0: following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of James this morning. What? I thought we were in Genesis. Yeah. Um, Here's what we're going to do. So uh, some of you, maybe if you're new with us over the last several years, one of the things that we like to do in a in a book study that we're in, is periodically we will pull out of that book when we notice something that we need to take a little longer look at. Um, and we're going to do that this, this Sunday. Um, and let me just give a, a little bit of a thought to this. Okay, What this really is, is a moment that if we could fit everybody into my living room and we could talk for a moment about particular dangers to the church, That's what this would be. Uh, Last year as I was planning the Genesis series and we came across the study of Sarai and Hagar, um, I knew that there's a particular issue that's going on with Sarai and Hagar that many times gets discussed in the church from an angle that says, this is a problem and we've got to fix it. Um, That's not this sermon this morning. This is not a sermon that we have a problem that we've got to fix it. This is a... Sermon that says, we have some unique things that are happening in the life of our church, and we're going to talk about those in a moment. And these are dangers or warnings that we need to be aware of. First, in our own soul. Then secondly, in the culture that you have that's bombarding you with these things. And then uh, thirdly, because you have an enemy that wants to destroy everything that God is doing. So that's what this sermon really is. It's just a, it's a moment we're going to get together. Sit down together. Um, if you're at my house, I'd take you outside to my brand new pergola and we'd just hang outside and we'd talk about these things. These are things that are so personal to me because over the years, the Lord has literally had to, um, not take a chisel, but take a jackhammer to. And some of you are of the same ilk, right? So, um, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, As I did the sermon planning last year, looking into the series of Genesis and Sarai and Hagar, it just showed me the dangers of two sins, selfish ambition and jealousy. Because those sins in particular, as we're going to study them this morning, are particular dangers to the people of God. And we're going to see why as we study the text this morning. Now, if you're new with us uh, this Sunday, thank you for being here. Last Sunday, we covered the famous story in the Bible in Genesis 16 on Sarai and Hagar. And if you don't know that story, here's just the gist of it to give you some background. God promised a man named Abram that he would make him the father of a great nation, and that nation would have so many people in it and offspring that it would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore The problem was his wife, Sarai, seemed to be barren. And they were childless and they were getting older. So his wife, Sarai, dreamed up this wild scheme to speed up God's plan. And she decided to offer her Egyptian servant, Hagar, to Abram as a wife, hoping that they could have a baby together. And that baby would become the child of promise. In her mind, this would give Abram a son, but it would also jumpstart the promise of God. But when the plan worked, like two queen bees, Sarai and Hagar began to fight. It was got so bad that Sarai's horrible treatment of Hagar forced her to leave and she was pregnant with this child. Now what we saw last week was that God, in His grace, met Hagar and eventually she went back to stay with Abram and Sarai. But what we did not spend any time on was the rivalry that existed between them and the jealousy that literally, listen to this, brought a family to its knees and it's a rivalry that still exists today in our world. So today I want to spend some time just discussing about this issue, this rivalry, but I want to talk about it from the angle of what God's Word says about two major sins. Selfish ambition and jealousy. Now listen, you're going to see these two sinister sins everywhere in your world, and they are applauded. They are actually anticipated. They are looked upon with honor. If you don't think so, just ask yourself yourself why reality TV shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are so popular. It's not just because of lust. Ladies or men vying for the love of a lifetime, Dating virtual strangers, indulging in things that are to be reserved for marriage, and then fighting with one another to win the heart for the bachelor or the bachelorette. Really, jealousy, contention, and rivalry are the names of the game, and right now there's some of the most popular reality shows on TV. In the sports world, if you're old enough to remember, you don't have to raise your hand if you are, you will remember the moment when Tanya Harding had her rival Nancy Kerrigan attacked by some crazy dude who tried to do the mobster act of breaking her kneecaps. You'll remember that. Or maybe you'll remember when Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal were teammates with the Lakers. After winning three NBA titles, they begin to feud over who was more important to the team. And that eventually led to Shaq leaving the Lakers to go to the Miami Heat. In our own world, you look around, selfish ambition is seen as a model character trait. The business person consumed with making it all the way to the top at all costs is applauded for their ambition. The hedge fund investor whose greed fuels their risks and consumes any relationship around them is celebrated for their drive. The college coach who loses his family in pursuit of his dreams is looked at as an an example. All the while, relationships are broken, lives are left wounded, And people are left confused. Not to mention what goes on in the church. We'll talk about this more later. Pastors rise up and begin to get a platform and think that they they need to be bowed down to and coddled to rather than being servants who are just simply doorkeepers to show people that the door room and the throne room is to the throne of God. The church then begins to have factions among itself and divisions because people want certain things to be done certain ways. And before you know it, the church is split in half. What we see in our world, in the church, and even in our own hearts, is that Sarai's and, and Hagar's bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition are alive and well in our world. We see it everywhere. But here's the question that we've got to ask, and I think we need to ask as Christians, we should ask it more regularly, and I think it's the, it's the thing that we should be saying to the world. Is there a better way? Is there something that is more joyful, more happy, more satisfying, more peaceful, more unifying, than living in this bitterness and this jealousy and having this selfish ambition that begins to ruin everything. And what is God's mind on this issue? And how do we combat it in our souls? How do we combat it in our families, our relationships? And I'll be honest with you, in our church. How do we fight it? And let's talk about our church for a moment. By God's grace and kindness to us, and let's just be... Let's put the honor where it belongs. We, for our 20 years now of history, these issues have not generally marked our church. Selfish ambition and jealousy is not something that you feel in the church room. Generally, our people, our leaders, have been people who are marked with a humble disposition before God. And listen, we have got to thank God for that. It's a true joy to hang out every Sunday with you guys, to serve you, to worship with you, and to get in church every week with you. The humble posture of our church is a sign that God is working among us. It's not a sign for us to brag about. That would make it weird. It's a sign for us to honor and thank God for these things. That's why I think it's important for us to consider these things. Because we don't have this stuff going on. So instead we should simply say, these are warning signs, warnings that we need to be aware of, things that we should be understanding how to posture ourselves appropriately so that when it does happen, we can go, yeah, that doesn't belong here. Some of you might remember in 2019, 2018 I believe it was, I did a series in our church called um, Citizens and Aliens. Remember what that series was about? It was about how we operate as citizens, What the civil government's job is and what the church's job is. And two years later, we had COVID. I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be prophetic. I will more than likely tell you I'm more pathetic than I am prophetic. (laughs) But I can tell you by looking at my own heart and looking at our own church and looking at church growth throughout the world and where places are that are growing. I can tell you that the rise and fall of all these places has to do with number one thing pride. And by the grace of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, of everything I have in my soul, I will fight this in my own soul and I'll fight it in our church. And so it's my job to preach to you and declare to you these things so that you can say, we need to be careful. At no time in our church life has there ever been a moment when we could look at something and say, you know, look what we've done. This church is all about, look at what God has done. And I want our posture to always remain that way. That's why I think this is important to us. So This morning we're going to do this by looking at James chapter 3, verses 3 through 18. So stand with me as we read this text. And you will see as we read it why it's so important. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For what jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, And sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, we so desperately need a work of grace that would help us to see that we are the worst sinners in the room. And that before the cross of Christ, we all are in desperate need. And when you bring success or you bring expansion or you bring growth, the temptations to pride and selfish ambition and jealousy begin to arise. So this morning I pray that you'd use this sermon to guard the soul of our church. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, here's what I hope we will learn from this text in Scripture this morning. And it's just simple, and you'll see it, and you'll see it in the text. Jealousy and selfish ambition ruin our lives and bring conflict. God has given us the grace to grow in humility and to be peacemakers. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it slowly. should be on your notes. Jealousy and selfish ambition ruin our lives and bring conflict. God has given us the grace to grow in humility and to be peacemakers. Now let's look at the first point in your outline, which is the context of the text and the church in view. The book of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, because of its emphasis on wisdom. And we'll see more about that in a moment, but one reason for James's influence and emphasis on wisdom is because of the culture that this church was set in. The Greco-Roman world valued wisdom over everything. To them, knowing things and having an understanding high-minded philosophy showed that a person had truly arrived. So James was burdened to talk about what is true wisdom. But the book of James was also written to help Christians understand what true faith looked like. Some in James's day, like in our day, said that faith in Jesus doesn't lead to anything. Lifestyles didn't change. Ethics didn't change. How we treat one another doesn't change. Just believe something and there's no reason to have any changes. One could be right with God with nothing changing. And James wrote this book to show some tests or some revelations of what true faith really looks like. You'll notice if you know this book very well that James chapter one details how trials and temptations test and reveal true faith. In chapter two, he talked about how we treat one another in the church is a test and reveals true faith. In chapter three, in the beginning of chapter three, he talked about how our speech would test and reveal true faith. And in the passage before us, he's going to reveal to us that wisdom reveals and tests true faith. But James isn't just concerned about dispensing wisdom to us or revealing true faith. James has the church of Christ in mind. It's in his It's in his vantage point. It's like in his, it's like in his sights. It's in his crosshairs. His entire book is written to the church. And he's particularly concerned about peace and unity in the church. In James chapter two, he wrote about the danger of cliques and showing partiality to one another in the church. Why? Because he's worried about peace and unity. It's why in chapter three, he's concerned about teachers understanding that they will be held to a higher accountability because of the words that they use. And he's concerned about the church and people in the church not guarding their mouths. But it's not just something that James wrote about. This is something that James lived. James the Apostle was known as the Apostle of Peace. He was one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem, Potentially the key leader in the church of Jerusalem who fought for peace when non Jewish people were coming to faith in Christ, and the Jewish Christians were upset about this and divisions begin to arise. And James is the one man, if you will, that says, No, we're not gonna live that way. Peace and unity for James were not was not a fad. It was not just a way to get likes on his Instagram feed. Peace with James, peace with others, especially in the church, was a way of life for James the apostle. So we come to this text of scripture that we're looking at. We need to know why James wrote it and what's the burden on James's heart. But today you're going to notice something else about the text we read. Notice what's just above it. Just above this is so let me back up. I, gotta, I, gotta, I missed a point here, so let me cover this. When we come to the scripture we're looking at, we must see what James is concerned about. He's concerned with people who have a poor understanding of true wisdom, people thinking that the idea of wisdom could do anything it wanted. In James's mind, as H.P. Charles has said, wisdom tells knowledge how to behave. That's what James is going to reveal to us. But James is also concerned with what true faith looks like. So... How does someone know that they're genuinely a Christian? And how do other Christians know and can help so-called Christians think through what this means? So James is concerned with peace in the church. He's concerned with what true faith looks like. He's concerned with true wisdom looks like. And he's concerned about the whole church. Leaders, teachers, and those who hear them and learn from them. That's what the book of James is about. Now let's get back to the point I just was mentioning. In the immediate context... Look back with me at the beginning of James chapter 3 and notice what's just before this context on jealousy and selfish ambition. He talks about the use of our words. Our tongue can bless, our tongue can curse, and these things ought not to be. He talks about the power of life and death being in our words. Now look what's just after this text in James chapter 4. He asks a remarkable question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do you see that right sandwich in the middle of our use of our words and the danger of conflict is the text that we're dealing with about true wisdom, about selfish ambition and jealousy, with James being concerned for unity and peace and a test for true faith. Douglas Moo wrote this about this text. Certainly, it would be often it would it would often be church leaders who prided themselves on superior degree of wisdom, and who were in a position to create significant disunity. But ordinary members of the congregation could create similar difficulties by opposing the leadership or engaging in bitter partisan fights for their own views. James seems to have the whole church, the whole community in view in chapter 3, 13 through 4, 3. See, that's the church, that's the context of the text, and that's the church that you're The church is in view. So when we think about this, here's how you got to process it. If James were here, James would be telling us, leaders be aware that when you teach, you're going to be held to stricter authority and more accountability. Congregants, be aware that the way you speak is remarkably important to unity in the church. And if you want to know why fights and quarrels arise among you, it's because of jealousy and selfish ambition that exist among you. That's how James would tell us the context of this text. Now look with me at the second point, which is the two types of wisdom and fruit that is revealed in the text. I almost titled this point, The Proof Will Be in the Pudding, because you will know what is real by what it produces. You will know true faith and true wisdom by what it produces, and James is going to tell us this. Remember, the burden of James is to show what true faith looks like and how to maintain true and peaceful relationships together and in the church. And James began this section, verse 13, with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? In our day, like in James's day, many were clamoring to be experts in wisdom, whether they were teachers in the church who thought they knew best or the people in the church who thought they were smarter. In our world, social media influencers are all the rage. Scientists are demanding us to trust them, and tenured college professors are pushing their form of wisdom. To James, to all those people, James would say, hey, come, let's sit outside under my pergola. Let's have a conversation about what true wisdom really is. Let's take a look at what wisdom is, and let's see the fruit of it. Let's chat about this for a reason, for a moment. Let's check out to see how truly wise you are. And it's at this point in the text that James reveals two different types of wisdom. One, he says, is earthly. And one, he says, is from above, which is heavenly. And James contrasts the wisdom of the age with the wisdom that comes from God. So let's look first at earthly wisdom, this this wisdom of the age. What does it look like? Well, verse 15 tells us that this is not the wisdom that comes from above. Now, that this is pointing back to verse 14, which says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. And James says that selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is not wisdom from the world or from, from, the, from heaven, it is earthly, it is unspiritual. And look at this word, it's demonic. So James basically says this to those who think they're wise and who have understanding in this age. He basically says, if you think you're an expert in wisdom and you think you have true faith, but you're promoting your own rivalries and your own factions and your own cliques, you're after your own agenda, don't fool yourself. You don't have true wisdom, nor do you have true faith. As a matter of fact, you're lacking in the spirit, of God at work in you, and your attitude is demonic. Imagine trying that in a church discipline setting. Imagine trying that when you're, when you're confronting somebody over their selfish ambition as they're creating division in the church. Now, we saw this attitude, didn't we, in Sarai and Hagar? Sarai wanted a baby. Nothing wrong with that. But when God did not give the baby in her timing, when she wanted this baby, when she thought it was supposed to happen, she selfishly devised her own plan. When that plan worked and Hagar conceived, Sarai got jealous and was beyond mean to Hagar. Hagar, for her part, began to look down her nose with contempt at Sarai. But that's not the only story in the Bible where you see this. As a matter of fact, you're going to see this. Virtually in every leader you're going to read about in the Bible. For example, when the shepherd boy David conquered Goliath, the crowds began to shout, David has slain his ten thousands. King Saul at that moment became jealous of David and sought to destroy him from that moment onward. When David became King David, his own son Absalom, the most handsome man in the kingdom, begin to stand by the city gates and steal the hearts of the people by just privately criticizing David's leadership. As a result, King David was exiled from his throne room until Absalom was finally dealt with in justice. We don't just see this issue in the Bible, we see it in the church. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 very clearly to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, That people naturally aligned under certain leaders. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Cephas. And he warned us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that to compare ourselves with one another is to live without understanding. Another way to put that is as we jealously compare ourselves by one another, we are fools. These verses all assume that this is a challenge in the church. They're warning signs saying, church be aware but the real question isn't just do you see it in the bible do you see it in the church the real question is do you see it in yourself these sinister evils come up in awfully weird places in our hearts do you ever secretly wish that you had somebody else's gifts position possessions or relationships Just secretly in your heart, just thinking, I wish I had. You ever find yourself being suspicious and self-righteously critical of other people's motives? Why they did this, I know why they did this. As if you are the only one in the whole universe that can judge a motive, which you're not. The Bible says only God can see the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Yet you believe for some reason that you have the corner of the market on this. You ever find the suspicion rising up in your soul and then you begin to make self-righteous judgments about things you know nothing about? Do you ever find yourself sharing weaknesses and sins or bad things about others that are in positions that you desire? That manager of mine, if he just get it figured out, we wouldn't have to have so many problems at work. Did you happen to see what so-and-so did? Do you ever get mad when you're not recognized for something that you've done? And to make it worse, somebody else gets recognized before you, and you're quick to help others remember beside you all that you've done to get that person to the point? Do you ever get upset that nobody recognizes you for your gifts, your your influence, your popularity, your fame, your, you name it. Friends, selfish ambition and jealousy are sinister evils that lurk in the backdrop of our hearts, and when something weird happens or something we don't like happens or an idol of ours gets touched, they leap. They would love to weave their ugly web into our hearts. And James says that is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. Now when we see these things in our world and we understand what they are, we should take James's caution in verse 16 very seriously. Do you see what he says? Where these things exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. Like Absalom before us, selfish ambition could cause us to sway people's hearts in ungodly directions. Like Sarai before us, jealousy would cause us to treat others harshly because we don't like the fact that they have what we want. Like the Corinthian church before us, rivalries will spring up, creating confusion, division in the church. Disorder and every evil practice. Just do the math on those words. This means these two sins will stop at nothing to wreak havoc. If you want to know why. The Apostle Paul tells us very clearly, when you see a man who's driving division in the church, you warn him once, and then you reject him. There's no messing around with this type of sin. Why? Because it's evil, and will do everything in his power to destroy what God is doing. So in God's mind, and in James' mind, earthly wisdom that has selfish ambition and jealousy attached to it, we could say pride in that as well, is not true wisdom, and is not true faith. So let's look at the, the wisdom then that comes from above. What does heavenly wisdom look like? This, in God's mind, is true wisdom and true faith. And notice how James <clears throat> explains it or gives character traits to it. What you're going to read when you read this as well, just for your own personal study, go back sometime and compare this list with Galatians 5 and the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. You'll see this very clearly. He says it's, first of all, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice first how amiable, like kind, um, almost like honey-flavored this is. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. You know what that means? This person is not hard to get along with. They're not prickly. They are able to disagree with others, but they're not disagreeable. You know the difference? They're willing to have a good old-fashioned, respectful debate, but it never turns into a disrespectful moment to hurt somebody with their words. They welcome it because it's a search for truth. Do you see how compassionate these things are? Full of mercy and good fruits. The word mercy in the New Testament means to literally get inside the other person's skin to feel what they feel and understand their pain. Is there nobody that's more merciful than Jesus, right, who literally got inside our skin? See, this person... When this person, when you, they're willing to literally get inside another person's life to understand their needs, where their ideas are coming from and understand their life, why, why they do what they do, not full of judgment, but full of compassion. And they're willing to do something about it. You'll notice they're full of mercy and good fruit, meaning the, this mercy is producing action. They're willing to serve them and sacrifice For them, because they know what they're dealing with. They've gotten right inside their skin. But notice as well the lack of hypocrisy in this individual, or this wisdom. It says it's pure, impartial, which makes reference back to James 2, where the church was showing partiality. You know, those who were rich, they showed partiality. Those weren't rich, they didn't. They kind of put them to the side. And James says, no, true wisdom is impartial. But he also uses a word that's intriguing. He uses the word sincere. Meaning, with a truly wise person, what you see is what you get. There is a, there is a, they're they're willing to live in a glass house, and it doesn't phase them one bit. Open their checkbook, that's what you see. Open their, open their life, that's what you see. They're transparent. They're before you. The Roman world, it's intriguing. This word sincere comes from an interesting word because in the Roman world. When a vase had a crack in it, the painter or the craftsman would take wax and would fill in the crack and then repaint over the vase so nobody could see the crack. The Greek word for sincere means without wax. It is a picture that if you were to be sold a vase, you could trust that vase is sincere. That people in the church with true wisdom are operating without wax. There's a, there's a realness about who they are. What you see there, you know, what you see is what you get. It's not fake. That's intriguing. These traits of heavenly wisdom and true faith point back to verse 13. When one who is wise, notice what he says, will by his conduct show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now what's intriguing is we hear the word meek and we think weak. Yet meekness means power that is under control or influence that is under control and wields its influence with grace and mercy and peaceful gentleness. In commenting on that verse, Alec Mortier wrote this. There are those who live close to God, see more clearly into things than others do, and just know how to manage life's varied circumstances. They're godly in character, sharp in discernment, and helpful in their advice and counsel. Equally, listen to this, they are understanding. Friends, this is remarkably important to us right now. Our world is filled with divisions, rivalries, and conflicts. They're everywhere. I'm asking myself as a pastor of this church Why in the world would I want my church to go out in the world and cause more conflict? And why is there all this conflict? What does James tell us? Because of jealousy and selfish ambition. James 4, we want stuff and we're not getting it, so we fight. We see it in families, we see it in businesses, we see it in politics, we see it in sports, we see it in entertainment. It's everywhere. And you would think, right, when you came to the church, it would be different. But yet, like rival gangs, cliques rise up to fight against one another. Like dominating leaders, preachers think they control the room because they have the platform. Why? Because people are jealous and selfishly ambitious, We desire and we can't have, therefore we fight. And then what happens is, Christians learn that very well in the church, and they take the same antagonistic attitude and spirit into the world with them, and we ask, why is the world not coming to faith? It's no wonder why people aren't compelled by our Christian witness. Christians can be the most disagreeable, contentious, and angry people on the planet. Listen, revealing it's not true wisdom, so what does God say that That should be our reply. What does God say? Truth is what God says, and what does God say? God says that antagonistic spirit is not heavenly wisdom. it's not true faith. True wisdom is peaceable and sincere. It's merciful and willing to sacrifice. It's gentle and willing to speak the truth in love. As Peter would say very clearly in his letter in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or 1 Peter 3, in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice how this stuff is clearly seen with the eyeballs. How would somebody know to ask you about the hope that is within you if they haven't observed you having hope that is within you? See, gospel witness is as much to do with what's in our lives and coming out of our lives as what's coming out of our lips. True wisdom from above is sincere. It is peaceable and gentle, and it is compassionate. Now, again, listen, CLF, I'm just these are traits that mark us you're gentle people you're peaceable you're amiable you're you're really wonderful folks who in, in all sincerity you want to represent jesus in every every area of your life the amount of people in our church that see their business life connected to their church life and christian life is remarkable Men and women who want to represent Jesus well in the marketplace, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. That is a unique, unique gift. Do you see why these warnings are good for us? They're good for us. And they're also an encouragement to say, let's keep moving forward with these things. So how do we do that? That leads us to the last point. The peace that leads to peace. And you'll see this in verse 18, when James wrote, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that the result of heavenly wisdom, a harvest of righteousness. Now, this is an interesting phrase because James has already shown us a particular issue that would not produce a harvest of righteousness. In James 1, verses 19 through 20, he says, let every one of us be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And then he says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, that phrase, the righteousness of God, means achieve what God wants. The anger of man does not achieve what God wants. Or the anger of man does not achieve righteousness. And we can assume then, going back into James 3, That earthly wisdom, jealousy, selfish ambition, is also another one of those sinister sins that will not produce anything pleasing to God. But heavenly wisdom will produce this harvest of righteousness. So what is this? Well, in the book of James, we have to ask what it is. You're going to notice something in the book of James. He never one time talks about souls coming to faith. So is it souls? Maybe. What is this harvest of righteousness? What's James Burden about? He's burdened about peace in the church. Have you ever considered the fact that biblical true humility that reveals true wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness, which is peace? you have thought about that? We can put it this way. Earthly wisdom, which is filled with anger, jealousy, selfish ambition, produces conflict and cannot produce a harvest that God wants and brings conflict in the church and in our relationships. But heavenly wisdom, which is peaceable, gentle, sincere, and compassionate, makes peace with one another, is peaceable, and accomplishes what God wants. How about you? I want what God wants. I want the harvest of what God wants. In a word, you know what we could define heavenly wisdom as? Humility. An understanding of our posture before God, who we are before God, and that all good blessings, all good gifts, as James would tell us, have come down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting shadows. And everything we have is a gift from God. Douglas Moo wrote it like this. The common thread running through both paragraphs is peace. After the initial rhetorical question setting up the issue of wisdom, James calls on his readers to demonstrate the reality of their wisdom in humility and good works. This leads to the contrast between two kinds of wisdom that dominates the paragraph. The wrong kind is characterized by envy, selfishness, and disorder. The opposite of peace. The right kind of wisdom, on the other hand, is above all, look at this, peace-loving. Now, here's a question about that. Do you see how otherworldly this is? Again, contrast the piece of James wanting that harvest of righteousness with what you see going on in the world today. Do you see how otherworldly this is? Do you see how heavenly this is? We have seen in the book of Genesis, have we not, that chaos and division are as natural to us as breathing. Friends, you don't have to stir up conflict. It is going to happen the moment a dude puts the gas in your gas tank. You're going to instantly be mad about him flipping the thing wrong. Why? Because that's what happens in our hearts. It's as natural to us as breathing. I don't really like the way the misters are coming down to the vegetables at the grocery store. The nasty stuff is just developing all over. And you instantly are building conflict. My latte was lukewarm. For real? What is the world coming to? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Tell me about it, man. Yet here in James, here's what we're told. Heavenly wisdom brings about a harvest of righteousness, which is peace. Peace with one another unity in the church, those things thrive in the soil of humility and heavenly wisdom. And listen, only God can produce that. See, the only way to not be jealous with others is to be perfectly content with what God has given you. You're aware of that, right? The only way to not be selfishly ambitious, and you're going to notice something about ambition, it's the word before it that matters selfish. Because there is a kingdom ambition that is very appropriate before God. The only way to not be selfishly ambitious is to be ambitious to please the Lord alone. Friends, the only way to be a peacemaker, really be a peacemaker, listen. Is to be at perfect peace with the maker. The peace that leads to peace, the peace that leads to this type of true wisdom is being settled with who we are before the Lord through Jesus. That's why, listen, my burden every week is to give you the gospel of Christ. Not to give you Christianity 101 and all the flannel graphs and go, well, okay, we got that. Let's move on. No, no, no. To see the gospel housing everything. Because when we see our status before the cross, here's what I see every week. I'm the worst guy in the room. There's no reason for comparison because if you're comparing yourself with me, do you know what went off in my thoughts this week? You don't want to think those thoughts. Do you know what really deals with my the sinful issues of my heart? You want compare yourself with me? No, no, no. Let's go to the foot of the cross and point ourselves there, because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all we're all level there because we're all there to just simply to look at the one, the one, oh the one, the one, who the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ, friends. Do you? Do you see? See, that, that's why the gospel, that's what we've got to keep. The only way to do that, the only way for God to be at work among us is to keep ourselves at peace with God through Jesus by continuing to gaze at the glorious gospel of Christ. And to keep that before our gaze. So are you at peace with God? See, so maybe you've come here today and you've realized, man, you've been discontent. And you've been wrestling with it for years. And this morning, the Lord is just showing you that it's because you're not at peace with God. You've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, and today you need to put your faith in Christ. If that's you, I just call on you to bow your head right now before the Lord and say, Jesus, I believe, I trust in you. Maybe you've seen the the conflicts around you you thought were really cool, but you're burdened by, like, why is everybody fighting all around me? Why am I in the middle of all these fights are revealing that you are not at peace with God? And God is revealing to you that you need to be at peace with him. So that conflict with God can be over. This morning, bow your heart before your maker and submit yourself to him. But listen, maybe you have said, look, I'm a believer, man. And I, I'm struggling with these things. And you know you're not content with where God is, what God's provided for you. You're not grateful for the position in life that God has placed you in. You're not satisfied with the station in life that God has providentially put you in. And you're seeing that wrestling match in your soul. Or, better yet, you're just foolishly comparing yourself by other people in the room. If I could just be like that guy, if I could just have what he has, if I could just get what she's got, I would finally arrive. Or maybe you're just selfishly pursuing your own agenda to make your name great, to get what you desire. Your, your response as a believer is no different than the non-believers, right? You understand that, right? It's to turn to the gospel. It's to turn to Christ. See, so your God sees it, and he knows it. Several years ago, Jill and I were going to another church in our town, and uh, there's something going on that day. And I said, hey, let's go, let's go visit another church. And as we're on the drive, I said to her, I'm battling with a particular sin in my soul, and I don't know what it is. I'm really struggling with it. I've been listening to sermons all week, trying to get my mind right about it. And she says, what are those sermons about? I said, I don't know. Every guy I listen to is on this thing about selfish ambition. And, and she says, oh, interesting, you know. And so we go to this church to visit, sit down, plop down, and the guy opens his Bible to Philippians chapter two to preach on selfish ambition. I'm taking notes the whole time and she's listening along beside me. We get in the car and I said, man, I just really wish that was good for my soul because I, you know, I'm not, I'm battling with selfish ambition, you know, and I mean, I've got my attention toward God and She said, have you not been listening? (laughs) Everywhere you've turned, the Lord has brought this up. Maybe it's time to pay attention. Friends, this morning, the Lord is turning your attention to some things. Just humble yourself under his mighty hand and recognize it. He will surely help you. He will surely deal with your soul in this issue. Now, as I said in my introduction, listen again. God's grace is among us. There seems to be a genuine godly ambition among us. A genuine humility about the things that we do. But let's be honest with ourselves. No matter our size, no matter where we meet, no matter who your pastor is, no matter what building you meet in, no matter the number of certain types of people come, no matter if cool people come or don't come, no matter if uncool people come or not, none of those things. May the gospel of God's grace continue to be evidenced in heavenly wisdom. May we continue, listen, to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, keeping the gospel in our view every day of our lives and helping one another to keep this gospel in view. Because in that moment, only the glory of God matters. Father, we thank you for this living room talk. Thank you for bringing us into your house and letting us hear from you. And God, thank you that... That you have been at work in our hearts to keep the gospel before us. But may we never assume the gospel. May we never forget the one who hung on our behalf. And the one who rose again from the dead on our behalf. The one who lived on our behalf. And he lived for each of us and for us. So this morning, Lord, I, I pray... For the non-Christian who's in the room, and if that's you and you're here this morning, I would just call you to turn your attention to Christ and tell God that you believe in him. You believe that Jesus came for you and died on the cross for your sin. And take communion this morning with a clean conscience before God. Stir the hearts of the non-Christian folks, Lord, who are here. Thank you that they're here. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are battling with contentment, battling with these things. Thank you for the battle. But God, we, we confess our propensity to pride. Don't we church confess it to God? We confess our, our leaning Lord at times to brag and to say how great we are and not how great you are. We, we confess to our leanings and our sin of jealousy and discontentment. We confess to, to, to selfishly and wanting our own ways. And we acknowledge before you that we need you. Thank you for the station that you put us in. Thank you for the building you have us in. Thank you for the people that come. Thank you for the friends that we've developed. Thank you for the homes that we live in. Thank you for the cars that we drive. Thank you for, for the food that you put on our table. Thank you that we can pay our bills. Thank you for the kids you've provided. Thank you for the kids that you've not provided. Thank you for the spouses we have and the spouses we don't have. You know us best. And you've positioned each of us to live for your glory where we are. And Father, would you protect our church? from pride and selfish ambition and unrighteous anger and bitter jealousy help us to be a place of peace that then go into the world to be peacemakers that are gentle open to reason so the gospel can be on displayed so that Jesus will be glorified so that he can be proclaimed and and demonstrated in our world like never before. That you would be glorified, that non-Christians would be evangelized, and that Christians would be encouraged. And Lord, as we take communion this morning, with each handing of the tray, we pray for each other. We pray for our own soul, we pray for the church. for your glory, the advancement of your gospel, and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.